got Club 56 kids or other kids in here. You can head out to your classes now. And uh, welcome again. <clears throat> we are, like I said earlier, starting a new sermon series today. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. But uh, kind of as we get started, because it's a great lead-in to the message, <clears throat> a couple Sundays ago, Becky Sonnemeyer asked if she could share her testimony. Uh, she said, you know, last Sunday actually was uh, 16 years that she'd been here at True Life. And with us doing the Q&A last week wasn't the best time, but then also kind of selfishly, I thought what she's going to share, because I know her story, will just be a perfect lead-in to what we're going to talk about today as, uh, as we kick off the book of Ephesians. So, Becky, why don't you come and share now, and you make her feel welcome as she comes. Morning. Um, like Jimmy said, I'm Becky Sonnenmeyer. Um, you may know me or you may know my family, um, especially my kids aren't usually, we're never all in the same place on a Sunday morning, it seems like. We've got kids everywhere. Um, even though we don't have many compared to some families, but uh, <laughs> they do seem to get around wherever they are. Uh, our kids do. So um, anyway, like Jimmy said, um, uh, yet last week marked um, 16 years that our family has been coming to True Life. It was the second Sunday that they had had um, regular services in the old building. Um, and uh, we, we came, um, it was kind of interesting um, the way that, that uh, God had worked it for us to be there. Um, the back then, 16 years ago, we had um, uh, Mark Jr. was six years old and uh, Josh was three, and um, Mark Sr. worked um, a job that that he couldn't be with us on Sunday mornings. Um, I can't remember if he worked nights or during the day or whatever it was, but it was just the boys and I that would come, and um, um, I had no church experience before. Um, we had lived here, we had moved here in uh, August of 2000, um, and um, anyway, we had, I, I just hadn't, I didn't have a lot of preconceived notions about God, um, but, uh, or church, or, or anything like that, I just, um, it wasn't part of my family growing up, um, and uh, what actually happened was that um, Mark Jr. Uh, was in kindergarten, and he would sit across the table from a boy um, that uh, had, was telling him about church. And, um, and he would come home, and, and one day we were in the car, and he said, Mom, this boy keeps telling me about church. And he said, what, you, what does that mean? And I said, um, I said well, uh, and we, went, we were driving through, and I said, oh, there's a church there. I said, that's a building. And he said, well, okay, so that's a church, but... What is a church? What, what does that mean? And um, I, it led to a whole lot of other questions, especially um, the, the one I remember the most that was kind of a, um, an eye-opening question was, he said, well, who is Jesus? And I said, I, I don't know what to tell you. I, I know that we celebrate his birthday on Christmas um, don't know any other, I don't really know why we celebrate his birthday. It's hard to imagine that I had, 
I just had no, no background. And, um, and so I, I had told my husband, I said, well, if he's going to be in school, if he's going to be in public school, I said, we live in the Bible Belt now. And I said, we're going to have to take him to church so he doesn't look, um, he can find out these answers to these questions because I don't know them. And I don't want him to get bullied in school, I mean, because, um, because he doesn't know the answers to those kind of questions. I mean, and um, so anyway, we, we came to True Life. And um, it was really interesting because when we got here, um, the family of that, that boy, that boy and his family were here. Um, that it turned out that this was the church that, um, that their family had been going to, or had, they were actually part of the poor, core group. Um, did I say the poor group? <laughs> the core group. Um, and um, uh, so, so he already knew somebody here. And um, it just, and, and also there was a family that I knew really well that was here that I had no idea that they were, they were coming either. So, um, but really what I wanted to tell you was that the, the person I was on the outside was so different than the person that, that was on the inside. Um, I wanted to share a scripture with you that uh, God had laid on my heart when I was, um, when I was praying about what to share. Um, it's from Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. And it says, Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that the ages to come in, to, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Um, and that phrase, but God, had really stuck with me um, as, I was, as I was preparing um, to share um, and how many times um, I can put that, but God, and how much we can, we can um, even, if, even if you don't know him as your savior, um, even if you're kind of just finding out what that's all about, there's, there's um, so many answers that he gives us in the Bible about um, of things and so many different problems or questions you may have. Um, one of the one of the things that was um, it's probably hard for anybody to that knows me now would uh, would believe be believe that that this was true that um, um, inside I was a I was dying inside really 16 years ago I um, I wrote down some some words that uh, inwardly that would have described me and they were sad. Hopeless, lonely, self-loathing, self-hatred. Those were all words that, that um, really, I couldn't even tell you now how, how accurate those, those words would have been to describe me. And I could probably think of a lot worse than that to, to tell you, but um, of words to describe the person I was. I had been in a, a lot of um, 
bad places with a lot of um, wrong places, wrong time, wrong, wrong people. And um, I, just, I just had so much guilt and um, sadness in my life. But, but I didn't share that outwardly. Um, I've always been a really private person. And outwardly, some of the things that people knew of me were that I was loud and brazen and bold. It's probably, I, to write even when I wrote this, to, say, to describe me as brazen now is just, I can't even imagine that the same person, which I'm not, um, praise the Lord that I'm not. Um, but I was, I was mouthy. Um, but people always, what I would do is the, the worse I was inside, I, the, the louder I was and the more brazen I was and the more I was, the, the worse I got inside, the more of the life of the party I began, it became. And um, it was just a, just a really, really um, bad place to be, a down, downward spiral. Um, but when I came here, um, and people through, through God, God used a lot of people here to uh, minister to me. Um, and uh, there was a lot of um, people that, that mentored me and, um, and just loved on me for who I was and, um, and helped me to see that God loved me. He had loved me back then, and I didn't even know him, and he loved me. And he wanted better for me than, um, and there was so many lies from the enemy that I had, had uh, believed that I was unforgivable, that I was not loved, that I was hated by everybody who knew me, um, that I, I just can't even tell you the, the things that um, would go through my mind. Um, and, um, but God... But God he had a different plan. And um, anyway, I just wanted to uh, share my transformation with you and uh, tell you that in 16 years, God can change somebody. And um, if you change me, he can change you. Thanks. All right, so I want to start with one of my favorite quotes that I think is a great follow-up to that. It's by a pastor by the name of Judd Wilhite, and he says, Most of us don't really want changed lives. We want changed situations. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. We want God to fix stuff. We want God to do things for us. But we don't necessarily want him sometimes to change us from the inside out to, to make us different. But the thing about it is this, I don't know how well you know Becky, but if you know Becky, you know in some ways her situation, her circumstances has gotten worse because of some health problems that she's developed, but God's changed her, and in changing her, he's given her the grace to deal with, to overcome the adversity that she's facing, whereas before... I don't think that would happen, and honestly, and, and I know Becky pretty well because she was on our staff for a few years, and some of the ways she described herself, I can't even begin to uh, picture her ever being uh, that, that way, and you know, if somebody's brazen, you're probably going to know that if you work with them for three years, and uh, uh, never saw that. So uh, Jesus wants to change us from the inside out. 
But the, but the question is, I mean, do we really want to know him? Do we really want to experience his transforming power in our lives? Or do we just want God to be the genie in the sky that we get to do stuff for us when we need him to bail us out sometimes? So with that in mind, what we're going to talk about today is a picture of a transformed life. And we're going to begin walking through the, the book of Ephesians and really the the Today and next Sunday, we're going to spend a couple of weeks looking at the first two verses and really the greeting that Paul shared with the church at Ephesus. Now, we, we could just kind of gloss over this, but I think there's some powerful spiritual truths that we need to mine here as we see uh, some clues to the way that God transformed Paul. And we're going to really want to focus on, well, how does this apply to us What can we learn from this that shows us how Jesus will work to transform us, where it's not just about change situations, where it's not just about religious lip service, but where it's about genuinely transform people, which is what the gospel is about. So, uh, as we look in in, uh, Ephesians 1-1, the first word is Paul, and that may seem a little backwards to us, but this was kind of the, the standard form of ancient letter writing. For those of you who are young and don't know what a letter is in our context, it's something that us old people used to do, where we took pen and paper, and we had envelopes and these things called stamps, and there's a thing called the United States Post Office, and stuff got delivered through something called the the mail, and uh, it was before we could text someone or email someone or Snapchat someone or DM somebody or whatever it, it, it may be. Uh, but, you know, normally when we would do a letter, we would say, dear so-and-so. And then at the end, we would say sincerely or yours truly or whatever and put our name. Well, in ancient letter writing, they introduced themselves first and then they addressed the people that they were actually uh, sending the message to. So he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, which was his mission, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and, and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to focus on today is the first half of verse 1. And we will generally go faster than this through Ephesians, although it will take us a while. It's only six chapters, but it's deep and it's rich, as we're going to see just the great riches we have in Jesus Christ. But he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And for Paul to introduce himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ Maybe this isn't overt, maybe it's a little more subtle, but it's, it's, it's a statement of the great transform, transforming work that Jesus did in him. Because just a few years earlier, Paul would not have been addressing a letter this way. Just a few years earlier, a letter that Paul may have written may have been to uh, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and it would have been along the lines of, 
you know, Paul, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, uh, trained by Gamaliel, and uh, you know, talking about his her- heritage, his history, all of his advancement and accomplishments in speaking for the law and advancing Judaism. He may have been writing a letter, he did write letters requesting permission to persecute Christians. Remember, he held the people's clothes who were stoning Stephen, the first Christian martyr. So he went from that to writing a letter where he says that he is Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's a radical transformation. And what's the significance of it? There's a couple of things that I want to point out to you before we really dig into the text, but... There's two ways that that this transformation is very significant to us, okay? The first is that his transformed life is evidence of the truthfulness of the gospel. So if, if you're not a Christian today, if you're not sure where you are spiritually, if you're here because you have questions, if, if you're here because you're wrestling with this, I want you to think about this, okay? This comes from Josh McDowell's book, More Than a Carpenter. And in that book, uh, Josh writes, uh, During lunch one day at the University of Houston, I sat down next to a student. As we discussed Christianity, he made the statement that there was no historical evidence for Christianity or Christ. I asked him why he thought that. He was a history major, and one of his textbooks was a Roman history text that contained a chapter dealing with the Apostle Paul and Christianity. The student had read the chapter and found that it started by describing the life of Saul of Tarsus and ended describing the life of Paul the Apostle. The book stated that what caused the change was not clear. I turned to the book of Acts and explained Christ's post-resurrection appearance to Paul. The student saw immediately that this was the most logical explanation for Paul's radical conversion. This bit of missing evidence made the pieces fall into place for this young man. Later, he became a Christian. So, if you want to reject Jesus, if you want to reject Christianity, how do you explain this man persecuting Christians and then being a church planner, proclaimer of Jesus, missionary, writer of almost half the New Testament. What happened? He tells another story in this book about a friend of his who was speaking at a university, and he was debating an atheist professor, a philosophy professor, and in his presentation, basically, he talked about evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, evidence for the conversion of Paul, and his, his own testimony, how Jesus had changed his life. Uh, the, the, this philosophy professor uh, couldn't really argue with the evidence for the resurrection, couldn't argue with his own uh, testimony, and so he decided to attack the conversion of the Apostle Paul, and he did it from the lines that sometimes people who are opposing something get so psychologically caught up in it that, that they begin to believe it. And Josh McDowell's friend just simply and quietly said to him, and he said, well, Professor, you better watch out because you may be in danger of becoming a Christian then. (laughs) McDowell goes on to write that Elias Andrews, former principal of Queen's Theological College, said, many found in the radical transformation of this Pharisee of the Pharisees the most convincing evidence of the truth and the power of the religion to which he was converted. 
as well as the ultimate worth and place of the person of Christ. A long time ago, this was in, I think it's the 1800s, maybe even been the 1700s, uh, there were two Oxford-educated friends, author Gilbert West and statesman Lord George Littleton, who decided that they were going to refute uh, Christianity. And the way that they decided to uh, approach it was that West was going to study and write a refutation of the resurrection, and that Littleton was going to study and write a refutation of Paul and his conversion and these kind of things, and then they were going to put it together and turn it into a book. There was only one problem. They kind of parted ways, went to study each of these aspects of Christianity on their own, and during the process, through studying the evidence, each became Christians. And when they came back together to write the book, they kind of each had to sheepishly admit to the other that instead of refuting it, I'm now a follower of Jesus. And so they actually ended up writing a book detailing you know, the evidence for it and their conversion and this kind of thing. And in the book, Lord Littleton wrote this. He says, The conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone, duly considered, was of itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. He concluded that if Paul's 25 years of suffering, listen to the logic of this, and service for Christ were reality, which even a Roman history book, would, an ancient history text, would admit that. If, if, if that was a reality, then his conversion was true, for everything he did began with that sudden change. And if Paul's conversion was true, then Jesus Christ rose from the dead, for everything Paul was and did, he attributed to his witnessing the risen Christ. So this is significant because his transformed life is evidence of the truthfulness of the gospel. And I encourage you, if you're wrestling with all this, to consider that. But, but a second reason this is significant is that his transformed life is an example of what a genuinely transformed life looks like for us. His, his life, this transformation, is, is a picture of Hence the sermon title, A Picture of a Transformed Life. It's a picture for us of what it looks like for Jesus to transform our lives. If you've got a Bible or your device will be on the screen, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 1 uh, for a minute. And as Paul, in you know, different places in the New Testament, shares his testimony, here, here's a part of it. He says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although... So he didn't did it, do it because Paul was so awesome. He kind of did it in despite of him by, by his grace and mercy. Although I was formerly, here's how Paul describes himself, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, which the word insolent means violently arrogant. So Paul describes himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violently arrogant man. But he says, I obtain mercy... Because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So he didn't come for good people. He didn't come for awesome people. He didn't come for people who have it all together. He came for persecutors and blasphemers and violently arrogant people. He came for sinners like you and I. 
And then notice what he says in verse 16. He says, however, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering, all patience, as what? As a pattern, as an example, as a picture to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. That's you and I, if you're believing on Jesus for everlasting life right now. He's saying, uh, Jesus saved me, the chief of sinners. He transformed my life. He, he took me from who I was to who I am now by his grace as a pattern, as an example, as a picture. And then he just kind of breaks into praise and worship. He says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He just couldn't help himself because he was reflecting on what Jesus had done for him, the greatness of his grace and his mercy, how he had transformed his life. So the main idea of this is very simply that Jesus transforms lives. He transformed Paul's life and he's still in the same business today because he said in scripture, this is a pattern for those who are going to believe on Jesus for eternal life. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's still full of grace and mercy. He still forgives. He still saves. He still changes. And he wants to change us from the inside out. He wants to transform us. And so there's two questions that I want to try to answer in the time that we have left this morning. And that is, what does a life that's transformed by Jesus actually look like? And then how does Jesus go about transforming our lives? And we're talking about transformation really primarily in the initial sense uh, of salvation. And then it's an ongoing process of the work of sanctification by the Spirit within us. But I want to give you, and there's more, but I want to give you six characteristics of a transformed life that we see in Paul in the New Testament. And we'll go through these pretty quickly, and then I want to try to apply them to us and our lives and our situations today. So here's six characteristics of a transformed life. Number one, he had a transformed heart. That's where it all started. See, he was exceedingly religious. Outwardly, he kept the law. He was zealous in all these kind of things. But you know what his heart condition was? Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Or Ephesians 2.1 says, you who were dead in trespasses and sins, he is made alive. And to be spiritually made alive is to be regenerated. It's where God takes a heart of flesh and gives us a heart of stone. He gives us a new nature. His spirit comes to indwell us. He makes us alive on the inside. Listen, no matter where we are outwardly, Scripture is very clear that all of our inward spiritual conditions is that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And, And we may look differently outwardly, But that's not really the issue. I mean, you know, we can dress ourselves up and uh, uh, ladies can put on makeup and we put on a smile and we can put on our Sunday best and our Sunday face and act like we've got it all together. But God knows the condition of our heart. And what we really need is not to be more religious. We need a new heart. We need a transformed heart. And see, everything else flows out of that. Because the heart's the seat of our affections. It's the seat of our desires. And, you know, the, uh, Christianity is not about uh, ultimately ought to or have to. I mean, there's an element uh, of that in there. But it's really about a new want to. It, it, it's about 
that our deepest desire is to know him, to please Jesus, that our affection is toward him. And yes, because we're still sin, we struggle with that sometimes. But that's where our heart really ultimately is drawn if we're truly in Christ. That's what makes us new. It's the work of God in us. It's not all the things we strive to do outwardly and religiously. It's kind of like, you know, you can go to McDonald's and say, I ought to get a salad, but I want to get a McFlurry. And that's religion. But Jesus gives us a new want to, where we want to please him, because we're new. Paul said, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So the gospel is not trying to get right with God by what we do outwardly. It's God making us new. It's God regenerating us, giving us a new heart, changing us from the inside out. And then out of that, we live a new and a different life. Because number two, a transformed life has a transformed character. A transformed life has a transformed character. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. But once again, we have new desires. We want to change. We want to please God. Here's one of the ways you know if you're really a Christian or not is when you sin, does God deal with you about it? I'm not talking about just like, uh, and I got caught or uh, I looked stupid when I did that. I mean, like I've sinned against God. I I need my fellowship restored uh, with the Father where we confess our sins to him. We make things right with, with, with other people. We're not primarily concerned with how we look outwardly. We're concerned with their heart and with honoring God and, and being right with him. And so think about what God did in Paul's life. How did he describe himself? Blasphemer, persecutor, violently arrogant. And you see, we struggle in different ways. That's not how Becky described herself, but she described struggles in her life. But think about how Paul described himself in his letters to these different churches. How many times did he say, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Follow my example. How did that happen? It didn't happen because of how religious he was. When he was all religious, he was a persecutor and a blasphemer, and he was arrogant. It happened when he met Jesus, when Jesus got a hold of his life, when Jesus transformed him, and then he began to have the fruit of the Spirit. He began to say, you can follow my example now. This is who I was, but this is who I am, and this is what Jesus wants to do in you. It's a transformed heart. There's a transformed uh, character. There's a transformed master, though. You know, if you're in Christ, you're under new ownership, so to speak. There's a new sheriff in town. There's a new boss. There's a, there's a new master. There's a new Lord. Paul described himself in Romans 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Paul, a slave of Jesus. Lord, you own me. You possess me. You're my master. You're my Lord. You're my God. You're my king. You're the one that's in control. Can you say that in your life? If you really are a Christian... That's true. Doesn't mean necessarily we always act like it, but that is our position and our confession and our desire is to follow him. Listen, some of you aren't Christians, and some of you aren't Christians and you know you're not. Some of you aren't Christians, but you think that you are. But some of you aren't Christians because you may want a fire insurance policy, but you don't want Jesus as your Lord. You still want to run the show in your life. 
And I'm telling you, it doesn't work that way. There's nothing like that in the New Testament. So, there's a transformed master. You say, well, why would I want somebody else to run the show in my life? Let me just ask you a simple question. How good of a job are you doing with it? You may find this offensive, but I think Jesus can do a better job. I know that's true of me, and uh, I believe it's true of you too. And uh, like I said, you may not like that, but I think if you don't like it, it's because of your pride, honestly. And, and, and really, if, if you're not at the place of, of admitting that you screwed this up and that you can't do it yourself and you need help, you're not ready to be a Christian yet. Because the way the old East Tennessee preachers used to say it is you got to get them lost before you can get them saved. And if you don't know you're lost and helpless and hopeless, and your only hope is the grace and the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, you're not ready to follow Christ. So you got to come to the end of yourself. Number four, there's a transformed mission. Paul, he, he introduced himself to the, to the church there. He said, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle means sent out one. Uh, I mean, it was an office then. It basically it means a, a missionary. He was saying, my mission now is the mission of Jesus Christ. My mission is to take the gospel where people don't know Jesus. My mission is to make disciples of all the nations. And I want you to know today, if you're a follower of Jesus, whatever your vocation Vocation is, your mission is to make Jesus known to as many people as possible. All of our mission in Christ is to make disciples of all uh, the nations. So, you may be a student, you may, whatever your job is, but ultimately you're a missionary. I mean, that's who you are in Christ. He transforms that. He transforms uh, the message. Number five, in in verse two here, he says, grace and peace uh, to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Basically, now his message was the gospel. His message before was the law. You know, keep the law and everything's great. Now his message was, you can't keep the law. The law condemns you. There's no salvation in, in, in the law. The, the law is only meant to show you that you need a Savior. You need Jesus. You need his grace. You need his mercy. You need his peace. That's his message. And if you're a follower of Christ, that's your message. It's Jesus. And then, number six, he had a transformed motive. Remember before he said he was arrogant? It was about how he looked, what people thought about him, him you know, being acknowledged and praised, and him you know, getting ahead in, in, in Judaism, these kind of things. Now you know what his motive was? It was the glory of God. Galatians 1.24, they glorified God in him. He said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, do it to the glory uh, of God. And so you know, when... when Jesus revealed himself to him when he brought him to the end of himself. You know, he struck a blow to his pride. And instead of his focus being on himself and him being known, it was now on Jesus being known. So what does this mean to us? What this means to us is in Christ, we have a new heart. And out of that new heart, we can live a different way with a different character. We have a new master. Jesus is now the Lord of our lives. And we're living for his mission, sharing his message with the motive being the glory of God that Jesus is seen and revealed and not us. Now you say, and you may say, I like my life the way it is. You may say, I don't need a transformation. I'm a good person 
I got it pretty well together. You may say, I don't, I don't want anybody else to be in control of my life. You may say, all this is just kind of stupid, really. You know, that's what a lot of people think. And we shouldn't judge them for that because actually the Bible says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And that's where we get our word moron or moronic from. I mean, you know, as Christians, we should just embrace that. And, and, and we should be okay with that. It's not our job to fit into the world. Uh, it's not our job to make this palatable uh, to the world. Uh, I love the way Justin Self said it when he preached uh, here in, in September that we're called to believe an unbelievable message. Uh, that's, the, that's what we're working to here in, in, in this text in, in just a couple of minutes. We're called to believe an unbelievable message. You say, how do you do that? We're called to burn all of our bridges behind us and put all of our eggs in the one basket of Jesus and the gospel. Why? I mean, that looks crazy to people, right? I mean, you know, we're taught as, as Americans, right, to you do you. You don't let somebody else be in control of your life. You're taught you can handle your own problems and you need to, to, to fix things. And if you work hard and follow these principles and do this or that, you, your life can be whatever you want it to be, right? We're, we're taught that. Or, I mean, why, I mean, why would you claim to follow a guy from 2,000 years ago? Or, or why would you say, Jesus, that's the only way to God? I mean, we're taught to be way more tolerant than that, aren't we? It looks foolish. I mean, why would we uh, entrust our lives to somebody who rose from the dead? I mean, that's not normal, is it? I mean, last time you went to a funeral, do you expect the corpse to pop up out of the casket alive? We don't think that way. Or, or, or why would you put all your hope in a cross? That's really nuts. I mean, why would you put your trust in someone being crucified, something as horrible and terrible and awful as that? That's pretty foolish, outwardly speaking. So why? Well, let me say one thing, and then we're going to move on to the, the second question that we'll end with. But um, all this may seem foolish to the world. It may seem moronic. But I would say this, how's what the world doing working? I mean, when you, when you look around at the world, how's that going? And, and if you want different results, you got to do different things, right? You want the marriage everybody you know has? You want the mental health? You want the drug abuse and everything? I mean, I mean, if everybody's got it all together and they got it all figured out, why are so many people popping pills and drinking and doing all these other things just to cope with life? I think I might be looking for a different answer if that's the results that it's producing. I think I might be looking for a transformed life instead of just something to help me cope to make it through the day. But how does this work? How does God actually transform our lives? What's the cause of a transformed life? And you may not be expecting what I'm going to say, but I'm going to tell you the answer is found at the end of the first half of verse 1. That phrase, when it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Paul said, the answer is not in me. 
The answer was outside of me. The, the little word by there literally means efficient cause. The efficient cause of him going from being a persecutor to an apostle of Jesus Christ was the will of God, the working of God, the gracious power of God. So right there, that's, that's a problem for some of you because you've been taught and you believe that the answer lies within you. I'm telling you, the answer is not within us. The answer lies outside of us. And until we come to the end of ourselves and admit that we don't have the answers, that we can't fix things, that we're not good enough, that we don't have it together, that we need a Savior, we don't have any hope. But once again, that, you know, th- this, this runs against just human nature, the way that we think. It, it runs against our intellect. It runs against our will because it goes against our pride. Why? Well, Paul didn't wake up one day and say, hey, this Jesus thing looks so good that I think I'm going to be a Christian. Can I just tell you that you're about to hear some really good news. Because uh, Paul shares, well, Luke does in Acts chapter 9, then Paul shares his own testimony in Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 26. But Paul, when he met Jesus, when Jesus appeared to him, he was taking a trip to go find some Christians to persecute them. So he wasn't in church. And and like I say, he didn't wake up one that day and say, hey, I think this is going to be a good day to become a Christian. And I don't know why you're here. Um, I don't think you're here by accident. But you may not be thinking, hey, this is a good day to become a Christian. But that's okay because you don't really decide that anyway. You don't choose Jesus. He chooses you. That's the story of the Apostle Paul. You don't pursue Jesus He's pursuing us, and I think that's why you're here. You know, we, we saw Caitlin get baptized a little while ago. If you were here last Sunday for the Q&A, one of the questions was something along the lines, is the rest of my family are Christians now? How do I know if I'm supposed to be a Christian or if it's time or something like that? And when we answered, in, in my part of the answer, I, I said with all confidence that if you're asking that question, it's because God's working in your life, and today is the day of salvation for you. Well, that night, her family contacted Pastor Philip, and she met with him on Monday, and that's when she received Christ. Why? Because God was drawing her to himself. She wasn't here by an accident. She was here by divine appointment. She didn't ask that question by accident. If you're here today, it's not by accident. It's by divine appointment because God, by His Spirit, is working in your life to draw Him, to draw you to Him. It's not an accident. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not a response on our part. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And sometimes people ask the question, what's the gift? Is it grace? Is it salvation? Is it faith? And the the good answer is yes. It's all of the above. Uh, Salvation is the gift of God. Grace is the gift of God. 
Faith is the gift of God. We can't even take any credit for that. If we're believing, it's because God, by his grace, is working in our hearts to convict us of our sin and to give us the ability uh, to respond and to believe in Jesus. Now, you know, we may disagree on some of the details how all that works. That's fine because I understand how all that works. I just know that... um, Uh, You know, I believed in Jesus, and I don't even understand why. And I know when I was a kid that God was drawing me to himself. I resisted it, but that didn't go away. And eventually, even though I didn't understand all of it, I gave into it. I said yes to him by the working of his spirit in my life. C.S. Lewis, the famous writer who was an agnostic, uh, literally described himself after he became a Christian as the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Now, this doesn't mean that, that didn't mean that he hadn't studied it and he didn't, you know, have intellectual reasons to believe it. It just means at the end of the day, he wasn't seeking God. God was seeking him and he drew him to himself. Is that you? You see, the reason God does it that way is because we can't take any credit for it that way. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 26, he says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory In his presence. Listen, we're not going to be in heaven sitting around talking about what we did to earn our way here and comparing our merits and all these kind of things. That would be our pride. All we're going to do is say, praise Jesus. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for what you have done. And that in and of itself is the difference between Christianity and religion. So... One last thing, okay, and we'll, we'll close with this. Acts 9.5, this is where it relates Paul coming to Jesus. In, in, in a part of this encounter where Jesus, after he'd risen from the dead, appears to him, um, Paul asked the question, kind of picking up in the middle of it. He says, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, which in and of itself is an incredibly powerful statement. That's the way that Jesus identifies himself with the church. And if I could just say this as an aside, if you're a Christian, maybe you're here, maybe you're watching online, you think the church is unnecessary, you ought to chew on that statement for a good long while. I mean, when he says the church is his body, I mean, it's like someone, and you know, there are Christians around the world being persecuted right now. Jesus says, you're persecuting me. But then he says this, he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. That's a pretty literal translation of that, and that's a weird-sounding thing. Isn't it? We, don't, we don't understand that today. I mean, I had to look this up at uh, some point in my life. But just to describe what it means, I'll just quote Chuck Swindoll. Uh, he, he writes this, Apparently, to kick against the goads was a common expression found in both Greek and Latin literature, a rural image which rose from the practice of farmers goading their oxen in the fields. Though unfamiliar to us, everyone in that day understood its meaning. So here it is. Goads were typically made from slender pieces of timber, blunt on one end and pointed on the other. Farmers used the pointed end to urge a stubborn ox into motion. Occasionally the beast would kick at the goad. The more the ox kicked, the more likely the goad would stab into the flesh of its leg, 
causing greater pain. Now, with that explanation, does it make sense what Jesus was saying to Paul? I'm prodding you. I'm convicting you. I'm drawing you. I'm revealing myself to you. I'm I'm working in your life. But every time you fight against that, every time you try to run away, you're just kicking against the goads. You're getting pricked. It's just causing you pain. It's just causing you pain. Now it's time for you to surrender, for you to trust me, for you to follow me. And here's what I would say to you today. If if Jesus has been working in your life, if he's been drawing you, been convicting you of your sin and your need for him, I ran from it for a while. If that's what's going on in your life, you're kicking against the goads. All you're doing is causing yourself pain when Jesus has good for you. You're running away from the one who can give you everything that you need. So why don't you just surrender and stop fighting? Because here's the deal. If God's chosen you, it's not a question of if. It's a question of when and how much pain you're going to put yourself through before you come to him. Stop kicking against the goats. Today is your day. You're not here by accident. You're here by appointment. The Spirit of God is speaking to you, and he's convicting you of your sins, and he's supernaturally regenerating your heart and enabling you to repent and believe now by an act of of your will as God enables you. It's time for you to respond to Jesus. Let's bow our heads and, and close our eyes. And I just want to encourage you, Right now, if God is giving you the faith to believe, just to reach out to Jesus and call on his name. There's no certain magical words. Listen, if God's doing a work in your heart, nothing can stop that. But if if you just cry out to God, ask him to forgive you of your sins. Turn from your sin. Turn your life over to him. Just Surrender to him. Say, just Jesus, take control of my life. I give myself to you. You're now my Lord. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Change me. Believe that you're God who came from heaven to earth. Believe that you rose from the dead, or that you died for my sins, and you rose from the dead. Listen, the Bible says we believe in our heart that, Jesus, that God raised Jesus from the dead. Confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that we will be saved. That whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That with the heart, man believes unto righteousness. With the mouth, confession is made to salvation. If he's making your heart alive right now, if he's giving you the faith to believe, just confess that with your mouth. Just take him at his word and claim his promise because that's really what faith is at, at, at the end of the day. In, in just a moment, I'm, I'm going to pray, and, and Molly's going to come sing something. Um, we didn't do this in the first service. We're not really even exactly prepared for this, but I just feel like we're supposed to do this. We're going to have a time of invitation, and, and if you have questions about becoming a Christian, come and see me. I mean, if you receive Christ in this time, you want to publicly confess that, Come and see me if you need to come and pray. Listen, if you need to be baptized, and, and God's speaking to you about that, you just became a Christian, or you've just been running from that, and, and God's dealing with your heart, I want to invite you to come. We'll baptize you 
right here on the spot. I mean, like I said, we're not exactly prepared, but we're not unprepared because we got water. It's still warm. We got clothes, towels. People can baptize, that kind of thing. I don't know. I just have a sense that God is working in people's lives, and we're supposed to give you a chance to respond in this way. What you do with it is up to you. So let's stand. We're going to pray. Molly's going to sing. If you need to come, don't kick against the goads. Just say yes to Jesus. Surrender to him by faith. Father, I thank you for the working of your spirit. And Lord, I pray that... uh, Everyone that you're speaking to would respond to you in the way that you're telling them to. For the glory of your name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.